perspective about this little church in an obscure corner in the world he, uh, of the world. He was excited about the faith and love that they so clearly had and he knew it stemmed from the hope that they na- now had because they had heard the gospel. Um, chapter 1 verse 5 for instance says that faith and love spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. What is that gospel? That good news. It's a message about what God has done for us. Paul keeps coming back to it again and again in uh, Colossians uh, uh, chapter 1. Verse 13 for instance, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has rescued us. God has redeemed us. God has forgiven us. He has done it all. How? He's done it through Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil evil behaviour, but now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Christ died on the cross. In doing so, God himself paid the penalty for our sins because Jesus was God made man. And that opened the way for us to be reconciled to God because now um, God's justice doesn't need to be vented on us because he has absorbed it within himself. He has, he has, uh, he has paid the price for everything we did wrong in himself, in his son Jesus Christ. And now all we... Uh, um, a meat from God is God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's grace. We can loaf. As William Temple, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, used to say, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. All we need to do is trust Christ have faith in Christ. The old hymn says it all, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. God reconciles us to himself. God gives us this bright new hope which has so transformed these Colossians free of charge. It's called God's grace. Now, if we've absorbed that as we've been um, looking at Colossians chapter 1, if we have seen that it's all about just seeing what God has done for us and trusting that, especially in Christ, we might be surprised when we read verse 24. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. Paul seems to say he is paying a price for his salvation in suffering and affliction. 
more confusing still, he tells us he's, <coughs> he's, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Did you see that? But he's actually just made some of the strongest statements there are in the whole Bible about the completeness of Christ's work, that there was nothing lacking. Look back at verse 19, for instance. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Somehow when Christ died on the cross, when Christ paid for the sins of all his people, he was actually doing something even broader than that. He was, he was reconciling the whole of his creation to himself. So that now the story can unfold by which God is determined to recreate his whole universe with him at its heart and forgiven people populating it. And Christ did all of that, completed it, when he died on the cross. So what on earth could be lacking? This morning, as we try to understand that, um, uh, and as we do understand it, I hope we will find the key to uh, um, understanding God's calling on our lives. We're going to look first of all at Paul's struggles. Then we're going to look at Paul's task. And then we're going to look at Paul's purpose. First of all then, Paul's struggles in verse 24. What does Paul mean when he says he fills up in his flesh what is lacking with regard to Christ's suffering. I mean, there are those who think that he is saying that he's paying for his sin. If you read the Da Vinci Code, for instance, you will, meet, you will come across a, uh, a priest who does the most terrible things and then flagellates himself to pay for his crimes. But that, that, that understanding just does not fit with the strong statements everywhere that Christ's death is sufficient for our sins. We do not need to do anything to be saved, to pay for our sins. What is lacking then in Christ's afflictions? Well, I think we get some way there when um, we learn um, from uh, modern scholars, that there was a Jewish belief in Paul's day suggesting that there was a, a fixed amount of suffering that God's people would have to go through before the final day, before the end of history when Christ came again and God recreated his whole universe. It may well be that Paul's alluding to that. But I think there's a more helpful way of looking at it. You see, Jesus himself actually explain what was incomplete about his suffering. He said that his life, his suffering, must be followed by other lives that imitated him. That's what he said um, very, very uh, uh, clearly to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. If no one followed Christ, 
after his death. In particular, if no one followed him by imitating him in costly, sacrificial, cross-bearing service, then actually in one sense his work would be incomplete. Not because he hadn't paid the price for our sins, but because there was no one now showing Christ by their life to a world that needed to see him. When Christ died on the cross, the one thing that was lacking was disciples who would follow him. Paul says, I'm doing that. More than that, he says, I'm rejoicing to do that. I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I fill up in my flesh what is, what is lacking. Though suffering and affliction are never pleasant than, of themselves, he says there is something deeply satisfying, something deeply joy-giving about living for God in this way, about following in Christ's footsteps. There is a purpose in these sufferings I am going through, he says. They are for the church. I do it for the sake of his body, which is the church. So even after, you see, Paul has made these incredibly strong statements about the fact that we need do nothing in order to be saved except trust Christ. He's now making a, 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 an almost equally strong statement saying but then we have the, the joyful but tough task of imitating Christ. What did Paul's sufferings look like? Well sometimes they were the result of opposition to the gospel. Paul was imprisoned, Paul was stoned, Paul was flogged, Paul was mocked. He writes this letter from, from prison. Then there was Paul's unrelenting labour in teaching the Bible, in encouraging and rebuking and nurturing Christians, in praying, praying for them. Twice, actually, in this passage, he mentions particularly that. In verse 29, um, for instance, he speaks of labouring and of struggling. The first word there um, is used to uh, imply hard toil, the sort of hard toil that a manual labourer would do. The second implies the vigorous training of an athlete. In chapter 2 verse 1, he repeats that he is struggling for them. He's never met them. He cannot get to them because he's in prison. But he struggles for them in prayer as he writes this letter and tries to communicate the truth to them, as he explains the Gospel more fully to Tychicus, who's the man who's going to take this letter, so that uh, he can help them, as he encourages their, uh, their, their uh, um, uh, fellow countryman, Epaphras, who planted the church and at that moment is with Paul. He was actively, vigorously, exhaustingly, involved in ministry for these people he'd never met. And we know as well that sometimes Paul's, uh, Paul's struggles were more private and more personal. 2 Corinthians 12, he mentions the, 
God gave him a debilitating thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. We don't know what it was but we know that it made him feel deeply, personally weak. But he knew that that enabled God to demonstrate his power. My strength is made perfect in weakness, says God. And that is God's calling to us. Now certainly the details of Paul's life are unique, but that cross-bearing lifestyle is mandatory for all Christians. Do you find prayer a struggle? That's the point. It's work, it's labour, it's toil. Paul himself says so. The struggle, the personal struggle against sin is ongoing and relentless. It is a marathon. Sometimes we will face real opposition. Um, uh, Will we just give up? Will we think something's gone wrong with our Christian life? Sometimes we will have deeply personal trials which reveal our weaknesses, if not to other people, to us in most excruciating ways. But we're offered nothing less, nothing else. That is what it means to live for Christ. Partly because that is the reality of the world. There are forces out there which are opposed to the gospel. Partly because actually only as we engage in that struggle do we find our character shaped and formed and moulded so that we become more Christ-like. Paul says the suffering of believers benefits the church, he says. He, he um, um, bears these afflictions for the sake of, his, of, God, of Christ's body, the church. And after long experience I have come to a very, very firm conclusion. Whenever I meet someone who really has been powerfully used in God's church who I adm- whose godliness ad- who, who I, uh, I admire who really makes me want to serve Christ I have uh, come to believe for absolute certain that there is a person who suffered and struggled and I've never been proved wrong yet And often, I have to say, it is in ways that the world at large doesn't really see. Just to go back to history for for a moment, think of uh, John Bunyan. He was imprisoned for many years for preaching the gospel, leaving his wife to uh, raise their children, including actually an eldest daughter who was born blind. But yet, while he was in prison, Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And that that book has set millions free while he laboured in that jail. 
One occasion he was out of prison for a while and then he went back. As he returned to prison he said, maybe this is not so much a prison as an office from which I can reach the world with Christ's message. Or I think of another man that I knew who's died now, who, uh, whose ministry touched thousands, who was one of the most godly men that I know. I learned after his death that he struggled all his life with a deep sense of his own unworthiness. Perhaps that was his thorn in the flesh. God needed to allow him to experience that in order to shape him and mould him to keep him from becoming conceited. Now, many, many of you here are in the early years of your Christian walk. And I hope that there is a longing to in fully enjoy the grace of Christ, to grow in Christ like this, to be useful in God's church. Let me say, there is no easy path. There was not for Jesus, there will not be for you. There is hard labour, there is struggle, there is affliction, there is suffering and in the midst of that there is great joy too because we are following Christ. Paul from his prison cell says, I rejoice in this because I see what it achieves in me and in you. That was Paul's struggle then. An unavoidable struggle. What was Paul's task? First of all in verse 25 we see he was called to be a servant. I have become its, the church's servant, by the commission God gave me, he says. Elements of Paul's calling, of course, are unique to him. He only was uh, uh, an apostle. But um, uh, there are also ways in which it applies to us all, especially those of us who lead in any way. If you lead a house group, if you lead in, in, in some other way, None of us has any right to lord it over the others. Our task is to be a servant. The task of servant, uh, servanthood, though, has quite specific elements to it. Did you see what the uh, second half of verse 25 says? God gave me a commission to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. Paul cannot be selective he cannot be slapdash, he cannot avoid, he cannot distort or deny parts of scripture. He must teach the lot in all its fullness. The American pastor Kent Hughes, uh, commenting on this passage, tells them of a, of a plaque on a pulpit. Sadly we don't have a pulpit and still less any plaques, but they're quite common in, uh, in churches, so that as you as the minister um, walk up, there is this um, uh, plaque that reminds you of your, your task as you um, stand there. The most common one is from John chapter 12, verse 21, that uh, says, Sir, we would see Jesus. Uh, Ken Hughes said that a friend of his stepped into an unknown pulpit and had a look and it said, Man, what are you doing to these people? <laughs> Uh, 
And sometimes, when, frankly, when you're asking people to work hard at understanding a Bible text, as you see your head's flag, as you are saying something painful that you know most people don't want to hear, as you're taking them perhaps through uh, some big chunk of scripture, you can think, what am I doing to these people? But we together have no choice. If we are really to grow as Christ wants us to grow. What we're doing together is we're learning the word of God in its fullness. There is a centre to that, uh, uh, that teaching though that we must never lose sight of. Verse 26 the mystery which has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul describes a mystery which was, which was not clear to Old Testament saints but now is absolutely clear. It is no longer a mystery in that sense. It is a mystery, first of all, that Gentiles can be included. Or to uh, put it in modern ways, anyone can be included. We are not from the wrong race. We are not too rich or too poor, too learned or too ignorant. Too good or too bad. Now, this is something for everyone, that everybody needs and everybody may have. And what is this wonderful thing that has now been revealed? Two things. Christ in you, says Paul. The indwelling presence of Christ. The fact that we can know Christ personally. The Holy Spirit can mediate the presence of Christ into our hearts. And the hope of glory, says Paul. The fact that now we can see that God one day will make all things new and we, as we trust Christ, can look forward with confidence to that. That is the centre of the, of, of, of the Bible's message. In order to, uh, um, to, to do that, Paul says he must teach in three different ways. Verse 28 we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. First of all, he says, we must proclaim Christ. There must, there must be a sense in which, um, as uh, any of us is teaching, but not least uh, me, Christ is upheld, portrayed, proclaimed. We are reminded of him. But that's not the end of the task, says, says Paul. We must he must admonish as well. That is a tough word. It has overtones of confrontation. And we've all heard people, Christian leaders being un, unnecessarily harsh or, or, or overzealous. But Paul does not mince his words here. It is important that we sometimes hear the word of God as a confrontational word. We admonish. And then says Paul, we must teach that is that bread and butter understanding of what the Bible says. We receive Christian teaching. We must be clear then 
what we need, what we should look for. It's not about entertainment. I'm, a few jokes certainly help, but um, that's, uh, that's not the key thing. It's not even just, um, uh, just a bit of encouragement, though that helps. We need teaching which teaches the whole breadth of Scripture and yet focuses down on Christ in us and the hope of glory. We need teaching which shows us Christ, which sometimes confronts us with things we don't want to hear and which again systematically explains to us what the Bible says. Oxford has, is full of lots of churches and we always have people having a taste, having a look often have people who perhaps have been coming for a while who start to think the grass might be greener on the other side. It might well be. When we look at a church, when we ask ourselves which church will help me most to grow maturely, we need to ask, is it fulfilling the task that the Apostle Paul had? To this end, says Paul, I labour, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in, in me. It is hard work. If you're going to be a responsible house group leader, it is hard work. If you're going to be a responsible Christian friend to someone else, you will find it is hard work. Hard work in prayer. Hard work in thinking how God's word applies. I, some of you know I've been um, teaching a ministry training course held in St. Debs and they asked me to teach a course on principles of exposition. I was aware as I looked across these people who were trying to learn how to, how to teach the Bible that some of them li- looked more than a little shell-shocked. And one of them came up to me and she said, um, now I know what my minister does all week. I pray actually that some of you in different ways will give your life in a specific way. I pray that some will give yourself specifically to that task. It's a massive privilege in that. There is an enormous joy to it. There's a great satisfaction, but it is one of the most demanding things that you can imagine. It stretches your mind, it stretches your relationships, it takes your energy, and most profoundly it stretches our souls as well, because we are teaching things that cut us to the heart sometimes. That is Paul's task. That is particularly the task of every Christian leader. That is our task together here. What is Paul's purpose? He particularly um, shows us that in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 2. Let me read them to you. 
My purpose, he says, is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. He lists a number of things that he expects, wants to see in the churches to which he ministers. First of all, he says he wants to see their hearts encouraged. He wants to see people who exhibit personal joy and vigour in their relationship with God. He wants to see them united in love, not just as isolated individuals, but relating to one another as a community of love. He wants to see them having complete understanding, which he says is riches. He wants to see them knowing Christ as well. Because, as he says, Christ is the key to all the uh, um, uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants to see them as well immune from deception. The deception of fine-sounding arguments. That's what we are about here together. That is our purpose. That is what we, we long to see in one another. We long to be encouraged in our hearts. We long to learn to be a loving community. We long for a richness in our understanding with Christ at the centre of our life and a solid immunity for every single person to false teaching that would lead them astray. Let me say to, to, to everyone here, will you join in that task? Will you commit yourself to that task of encouraging one another, loving people, knowing Christ, refuting the devil's lies? You know, many of us here are new. We have a, we've, had a, we've had a great influx um, in, uh, in, in the last few weeks into the church. Let me, let me encourage you, get involved in other people's lives. Perhaps, perhaps you feel that you're only just passing through for a little while. Perhaps in particular you're a, a, a student and you think, well, I can't do that. All I can do is just, uh, um, just turn up and, uh, and sit here. Let me tell you a story. Um, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, gathered um, great local interest wherever he went to preach and he was once preaching to a rally when um, he suddenly stopped and he pointed to a man on the front row and he said, you sir, are you born again? And this man looked rather ruffled and sort of taken aback and he answered, no, I'm a reporter. Well, let me ask you who are sitting here. Are you a member of this church? I don't think we have the choice to say, no, I won't be here that long. No, I'm a student. No, I'm keeping my options open. And I think the only reason that uh, we, we, uh, we really can legitimately say no is 
this is the only Sunday I'll be here or I'm not yet a Christian otherwise whilst you're in this family of God it is our duty to be working together for this great purpose that Paul sets before us. We are called to struggle together for that purpose. But let me say there are some here who may be thinking that you're called particularly to some form of Christian leadership. I hope there are. I hope there are um, people who are considering that. Let me say to you, in a, in a particularly pointed way, it does, as Paul explains, bring affliction, suffering, toil, struggle, and yet it is the greatest joy. I don't think you have to be enormously gifted to give your life to that great task. I heard this week of a, um, an African lady who got converted. She was blind and very poor. She uh, went to missionary that she knew with a, with, with a Bible and she asked the missionary to underline in red John chapter 3 verse 16 God so loved the world that he gave his only son the missionary was a bit confused about this since she was blind didn't seem to be terribly relevant to her but he did it she went and sat outside a school and at the end of school she would call to the boys as they came out of the school and she would say could you read to me the what's underlined there please and then she said do you understand that and they'd say no and uh, so she would explain to them after a number of years she was responsible for seeing uh, 24 men go into full time gospel ministry you can be used by God whatever your circumstances, whatever your situation, you can be used by, for this great task. It will not be easy. It will be incredibly satisfying. 